to falling fertility in the United States, a plague of loneliness and lack of friendship, bitter conflicts over racial and gender identity, and a politics of culture wars and moral panics have to do with one another. Well, these are the opening lines of a new book, and the answer, according to its author, is too many bad, low-wage jobs. Michael Lind is a best-selling author, a columnist at Tablet Magazine, and a co-founder and fellow at the New America Think Tank. His new book is Hell to Pay, How the Suppression of Wages is Destroying America. Michael Lind is my guest today on Lean Out. Michael, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to have you on today. We spoke for your last book, The New Class War, uh, which had a huge impact on my thinking. So I'm really pleased to get to speak today about how to pay. In that book, you argue that an economic crisis of too many bad, low-wage jobs in America is implicated in a series of other cascading American crises, a demographic crisis, a social crisis, an identity crisis, and a political crisis. This book grew out of a tablet piece you published right after January 6th. When did you know that you had a book here? Well, there was a lot of response to my uh, tablet piece, and this was kind of a logical successor to my 2020 book, uh, The New Class War, although it's more narrowly focused on the U.S., simply because uh, a lot of labor laws are specifically national rather than than uh, shared. But I think people in other countries uh, will, will find a lot uh, that's relevant to their own societies. Absolutely. So let's start today by talking about what the life of a low-wage worker in the United States looks like right now. Paint a picture for us. Well, most low-wage workers are concentrated in a few sectors. Uh, retail is one. Uh, uh, hospitality uh, and leisure is another. Fast food. We've seen Amazon warehouse workers are among the low-wage workers. People, you know, working at Starbucks, for example. Uh, in the United States, Walmart was notorious for its low wages. Now, under pressure, Amazon and Walmart have raised their wages somewhat. But a lot of small firms in those industries have not. And the really horrifying thing about these industries is that the wages they pay are so low that a full-time worker cannot earn enough to support himself or herself much less a family. Uh, so the, the low wages, the poverty wages, really need to be topped up by public assistance of some sort, welfare, as, as we call it in the U.S., uh, meaning means-tested public assistance, as opposed to universal entitlement programs like Social Security or Medicare. Uh, some of this takes the form of direct cash transfers to these low-wage workers, like the earned income tax credit, a wage subsidy that is collected at the end of the year from the Internal Revenue Service. Others are things like food stamps and housing vouchers. And the result is that for these workers, I argue in my book, Hell to Pay, we have a, a low-wage, high-welfare system. It's not high-welfare system in the sense that it's generous welfare. Uh, the U.S. is very miserly compared to uh, other English-speaking countries, and certainly to European countries when it comes to welfare benefits. But the benefits are high as part of the overall income of the worker. I have I pointed out a case in New York State uh, in the last decade where, and this is from New York State government statistics, a low-wage worker would get maybe half of that worker's income from uh, government transfers topping up uh, this low wage. And it it creates really an underclass of workers who are different from other workers. Most workers in the U.S. are not in this category. Uh, somewhere between a quarter and a fifth belong to this working poor category. Uh, but for those who are, who are trapped in these low wage jobs, there's this dilemma. They, they can't access welfare benefits without taking a low wage job. But because the wages are so low, they can't earn enough money to escape 
from dependency on welfare. And in the book, you go through, as I mentioned, these these crises that are all sort of implicated in this. I, I want to start and go through one by one, because I think it's really interesting, uh, each specific one, um, and how the low-wage jobs contribute to them. So let's start with the demographic crisis, um, something I've covered a fair bit on the podcast, given that Canada's birth rate is at 1.4, so well below replacement. Um, tell us where America's at with its fertility crisis and the role that low-wage jobs are playing here. Well, the U.S. used to brag about its uh, demographic exceptionalism, having high birth rates compared to uh, uh, other Western countries. The total factor of fertility rate in the U.S. now uh, is down you know, below 1.5%. You need 2.1 in order to have a stable population. Uh, and even immigrant groups, which were supposed to be the salvation with their high birth rates, turn out after generation, they assimilate to this low birth rate norm, which suggests there's something in the environment that's causing it that is not primarily cultural. And I argue that was causing the low birth rates, not just in the U.S., but it's in other industrial democracies. Uh, it's the fear of falling into this trap of the low-wage workforce, of the precariat, as it is sometimes called. Uh, even though most people are not in it, they're worried about sinking down into it. And so the way you avoid sinking down is by uh, credentials. Now, in the in the old days, when we had collective bargaining, unions made sure that uh, there were no working poor. If you worked full time, you weren't poor thanks to the union, if, if that uh, industry was uh, unionized. But in the absence of that, People want any advantage they can to get a decent wage uh, job. And they have been told correctly to some extent that you need a, a bachelor's degree or in some cases you need an occupational license. So we see two kinds of uh, credential arms race going on. One is things that didn't used to be licensed, you know, like fl florists flower arrangers now have all of these licensing requirements. And that makes economic sense because it, it uh, creates a cartel among florists uh, that keeps out the competition and therefore it bids up their, their uh, the fees they can charge. A similar cartel, if you think about it, is created by college diplomas. But the, the problem with the college diploma is the value is in the scarcity. And as more and more people get four-year diplomas, it's now about 40% in, in Europe, and it's creeping up to that in the U.S. Then it becomes devalued. It becomes like a high school graduation diploma. So what does this have to do with the demographic crisis? Well, it means that young people, instead of graduating from high school or the equivalent in various countries, can't go to work at a living wage job uh, or even an apprenticeship that leads to a living wage job and start a family and buy a starter home. They just can't do that. They have to spend more and more of their 20s, sometimes 30s and 40s, uh, obtaining what are very, in some cases, expensive credentials. Sometimes, you know, they're subsidized, but in other times, uh, in, in the United States, you have to take out student loans uh, in many cases. Uh, and the, repaying the loans makes you defer family formation, home ownership, because it's a huge cost every month, you know, for these uh, graduates. So what you, you find, and I talk about this in my book, uh, and this is not original, but I'm, I'm just bringing the data together. You, you see this uh, class divide. Uh, some people call it the diploma divide in marriage, mm -hmm. where college-educated people who are still a minority in the U.S., although it's about a third and growing, they're much more likely to be married and to be have stable marriages, but they marry late. And often both partners have not just a BA, but maybe a master's or an MBA or a professional degree of some kind. Uh, so, so they postpone uh, marriage, uh, but they do have kind of traditional 1950s families within what in my book, The New Class War, I called the college-educated overclass. Uh, the working class is in much worse shape uh, in terms of uh, family formation. They, too, defer marriage until they feel financially secure, but many of them will never be financially secure. And so a lot of them just go ahead and have children 
thinking that they will get married in the future, you know, when when their economic prospects are better. So you have this growing uh, rate of births out of wedlock with working class people of all races. Uh, it's, it's not a racial or ethnic thing in particular. Uh, it's a class thing. So, again, you know, is, is the, would a living wage for everybody ameliorate this? There are cultural factors, of course. There are religious factors, you know, uh, things like that. But, but when you ask people why they didn't get married, usually the number one answer is they, they felt financially insecure. And the same thing gets goes to uh, the number of children they have. So most American women say they want two or more children. But if that were the case, our fertility rate would be above two, right? And it's it's a fraction of that, and it's unsustainably declining. Uh, uh, so there, it's both financial security, but also it's time, right? You run out of time uh, to have kids by deferring family formation so long. Yeah, it's so interesting. All of the trends that you're talking about, I recognize in my peers and in our lives. You also you also write about a social crisis that is happening throughout America, this epidemic of loneliness and isolation and deaths of despair, also very prominent in Canada. We've covered that on the podcast. We recently had Brendan Case on talking about his piece for Compact in which he cites your work. Um, how do bad jobs influence that crisis? Well, you may remember Robert Putnam's work on on bowling alone. Uh, if you look at social life of the working class in the middle of the 20th century in the U.S. and in similar countries, a lot of it revolved around trade unions among unionized workers, uh, among organized religious communities, which were much more influential. And, and back then, far more people belonged uh, to churches, and then even politics. There, we still had mass membership parties. The parties were not just labels that billionaires bought, you know, and with teams of spin doctors. So all of these mass membership organizations have crumbled, partly because of a lack of time and, and regular schedules. Uh, and one of the results of this has been something that the uh, great French sociologist, Emile Durkheim, diagnosed in the 19th century. He coined a word for it from Greek, uh, anomie. Uh, which means normlessness or isolation or alienation. And he was seeing this in Britain and France uh, in the early industrial era when these villagers came to the big industrial city and they had no contacts. You know, they didn't have family in the city. Uh, and, and it led to, in that case, waves of suicide uh, uh, that he studied. Uh, now, interestingly enough, his so proposed solution, which is not well known because uh, his essays on this were not translated into English, uh, has to were guild-like, union-like organizations where you spend most of your time, uh, most people do, at work, among other, uh, and particularly for big organizations. In the United States, a majority of private sector workers works for a company that has more than 500 employees. It's not a mom and pop economy anymore, as it been for generations. It's a big company economy. Uh, and if you're, you don't have any union to represent you or to socialize with, you're, you're afraid of socializing because HR is telling you, you might say something wrong and defend somebody. Uh, having said that, uh, professionals in the United States and elsewhere have full, pretty decent professional lives. They have professional associations. You know, they can go to, uh, uh, you know, extended training seminars. They can go to conferences and hotels, right? They're on various mailing lists. So, so professionals have a fairly good social life. It's the working class in particular. And, and the worst off are those without steady schedules. Gig economy workers, for example. Uh, or retail workers, and you don't know what your hours are going to be next week, right? So how can you plan to go on a picnic with your cousins or to do something with your friends? Uh, or what if it's a, a couple and the the partners, you know, their schedules change randomly. They don't even know when they're going to be together. So this is incredibly stressful. And I think the the center left has neglected this in the last generation, because they only look at 
money, how much money are people making? Okay. But if you have one person who is making money because of a living wage uh, and you work 30 hours a week and then the rest of the time is free time and you have a regular schedule, you have a much happier life than someone who's making the same amount of money, but, you know, as an Uber driver or a Lyft driver, and maybe there will be a convention in town one week and you'll make lots of money and then, you know, you, you won't make any money the next week. So, so we need to get back to thinking about schedules. Uh, and, you know, just to wrap this point up, polls show that young Americans, and this is true across the Western world, have fewer friends than anybody in recorded history, starting with their baby boomer parents and, and older relatives. It's just a collapse of, of uh, friendship, of uh, dating in many cases, of marriage. Uh, and so, you know, if, if something like this is happening simultaneously in English-speaking countries and continental European countries and East Asian countries like South Korea and, and Japan, uh, and uh, it suggests that it can't be some unique cultural factor. Uh, it has to have something to do with the nature of work and the nature of wages and the nature of credentialing. It's it's so interesting. And, and when you talk about sort of those young, unmarried, childless, socially isolated 20 and 30 somethings, you made this great point in the tablet piece that, that that's exactly who can be easily mobilized by both the left and the right for partisan conflicts, which is I do want to talk about ident the identity crisis and um you write in Hell to Pay that identity politics are best understood as, quote, status competition within the college-educated overclass. Talk to me a little bit about your, your thinking on identity crisis. Well, I, uh, the identity crisis, uh, you know, identity politics, uh, as you say, it preys on people who, instead of being part of communal networks, which are, you know, define them. I'm a member of this this town, this state, this uh, religious congregation, this particular trade union, uh, you know, this party that's a real party federation. Then I actually know, you know, people who work in the political party. If instead you have people who are completely isolated and they have few friends and their identity is kind of up for grabs. And this is particularly true of the upper middle class college educated people who are heavily online. Working class people are not spending lots of time on Twitter. Uh, and, and by the way, just as an aside, this is why the whole Russia conspiracy theory about Trump's election through Putin manipulating memes didn't make any sense because Trump won with a lot of white working class people in industrial states uh, voting for him, and then they voted against him in some cases in 2020, and he lost. But, you know, they're driving trucks. You know, they're delivering oxygen tanks to old people in their homes, right? They're standing up at, at grocery stores. Uh, it's it's really the professional class, mm. uh, the laptop class, as some people call them, who have a lot of time, you know, and they're surfing online. Uh, and some of them are are lonely and isolated, and they look for communities online. And so you get, and the term community, I think, has been abused uh, in the age of identity politics to mean category. So, for example, male and female are not communities. Those are categories. It's, you know, like left-handed and right-handed is not a community. Uh, but we have these abstract communities and races are they have their social facts to a certain extent, but also, you know, a lot of the categories are just fabricated. So, for example, the United States, the census made up this category of Asian and Pacific Islander in the 1980s and 90s. There's no such thing as an Asian and Pacific Islander. It, it, there, that, that is, there's no community of interest or of descent or culture that unites Filipinos, in Indians, in Chinese and Japanese. This is just completely arbitrary category, mm. but it takes on a life of its own uh, when it is backed by the government, by the universities, by affirmative action policies, uh, but also by the internet. Uh, you see this with the proliferation of 
of identity flags. So, you know, originally there was the Kente cloth, right? This was black nationalist. Uh, and that itself was a category because uh, Americans of partial African descent, you know, who are the descendants of slaves in the South, really have very little in common with, you know, people in Kenya or people in Barbados or whatever, apart from some genes. So, so even black nationalism was always a category movement, as was white nationalism. I mean, you know, it's kind of ridiculous to say white Americans have some kind of mystic affinity to Italians and to Norwegians and, and to uh, Czechs. You know, this is this is all fantasy. So uh, this would might be harmless fantasy if, you know, people belong to these imaginary communities that exist largely online, you know, that, that don't have any historic basis, uh, if they weren't being mobile weaponized in, in competition among individuals. Uh, and, you know, this is part of the problem with uh, race-based affirmative action and gender-based affirmative action. Uh, now, where you can make a case that breaking down like the all-white male buddy networks that existed after the end of segregation and, and the women's rights revolution made sense. But if you get systems of quotas where you're demanding that every office, every sports team, every theater play cast exactly correspond to the U.S. census as of the last census in 2020, of course, it changes every 10 years, uh, then you have a motive for people to play games with their own identities, right? And we have more and more of in the United States, they're called pretendians. Uh, you know, these are so-called non-Hispanic white people. I say that because that's a bogus category too. Uh, but, you know, they they try to pass themselves off uh, as Native Americans uh, because there's money and jobs involved, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and a lot of the woke language is similarly weaponized. So like one week, you say a uh, person of color and anyone who did not get the memo who says colored person is then denounced as a bigot and a racist, uh, you know, and then if if your boss uh, at, at your uh, bureaucracy uh, hasn't gotten the latest, you know, memo on on the right ways to talk about things and sensitivity, well, you know, then you can denounce your boss and, and drive the boss out and, you know, something opens up. And we're seeing this particularly in journalism in the United States, where a whole, an entire generation of editors and of uh, writers have been purged. Uh, now, you know, maybe it's good for them to be purged and have some turnover for new talent, but they were purged for angering the young 20-somethings and 30-somethings who successfully used their microaggressions, supposedly, or their, their lack of, not gross things like sexual harassment, right? But not having exactly the right positions on, on particular issues. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it creates a, a really illiberal environment mm -hmm. in which uh, it does remind you of the Soviet Union or, or, you know, of a totalitarian state in which you, you know, make one false statement, you know, you, you make one reckless remark uh, and you're ratted out uh, and not to the secret police, but to the uh, HR department. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> certainly in journalism in Canada right now, we're dealing with the same kind of dynamic and it is quite chilling. Um, before we move on to some other points, I do want to just touch on the political crisis aspect of this as well, which which you argue is driven by culture wars on the right, moral panics on the left. We've just been talking about that. Um, and a political class that is not aligned with voters' concerns and often acts instead in the interests of its donor class. Um, what role do low-wage jobs play in that? Well, the, the essential change in U.S. politics, and this is true in other countries as well, it was the disappearance of private sector trade unions as political actors. Uh, because the unions you know, could pressure, they were lobbies for working people and they could pressure politicians uh, and they could lobby for working people between elections, not just at election time, but between elections 
like other lobbies, and their essential extinction in the United States. Uh, private sector union membership has gone from about a third in the 50s to 6% and falling now. It's almost extinct. It's lower than it was under Herbert Hoover before the New Deal in the 1930s. Uh, and as a result, uh, there's been a uh, – and, and when you combine this with the primary system in the U.S. in which the parties – which really don't even exist in the U.S. at this point. They're just kind of labels. The parties don't choose their own members the way they do in countries with parliamentary democracies, like Canada and Britain and, and Australia. Uh, but they're chosen in elections open to the public. Uh, the primary election selects the candidate, and then the winner of the primary election goes on to the general election. Well, we know from the data, which I put forth in my book, Hell to Pay, Primary voters are much more educated and much more affluent and well-to-do than the general electorate is at large. They're also more ideologically extreme, and this cuts against one of the cliches of the establishment, which is that we have this sensible centrist establishment, and we have these crazy far-right and far-left lunatics in the working class. It's actually the opposite. <laughs> the working class, if you look at the Democratic working class, uh, disproportionately Black and Hispanic, and the white working class voters, uh, uh, many of them Republicans now, uh, and you ask them what their priorities are, it's very quotidian things. You know, it's jobs and wages and inflation and neighborhood safety and good schools and so on. Uh, if you look at the Democratic and Republican primary voters on the left, it's abortion, gay rights, trans rights, you know, climate change, uh, all non-negotiable issues. I mean, they may be valid, but you can't compromise on them, unlike economic issues. Uh, you know, on, on the right, it's it's just a series of things, you know, outlawing abortion, uh, you know, outlawing uh, uh, they've lost on gay marriage. Uh, but focus now on on trans rights. Uh, and this just consumes the uh, politics of uh, the elite left and the elite right. I mean, uh, and they're both heavily on Twitter and on social media. And this is what they want to talk about. You know, there's 10,000 tweets of left and right on some trans issue or on, you know, books in kindergarten about gay rights or something like that, for every one tweet, if there's one tweet at all about raising the minimum wage, right, or about community policing to lower the crime wave that's going through the U.S. right now, the aftermath of, of COVID and, and, you know, protests against policing uh, following George Floyd's death. So, so there's a, the, really, the, you, you have the selectorate, if you want to call them that, the people who select the politicians have more in common with each other socially in the Democratic and Republican Party. They're both much more likely to be college educated, affluent. Their, their material needs are taken care of. And so they can just war about these, these uh, issues, which are not unimportant issues, but they're not the issues of the working class constituents of their own parties. I want to talk to you a little bit about how we got to this point. So you write in Hell to Pay, today the United States is unique among developed nations when it comes to the thoroughness with which the economic overclass has decimated the bargaining power of the multiracial working class majority. So this situation uh, has been achieved by employers crushing worker bargaining power through a number of different strategies. Offshoring and deunionization are probably the most famous, but contract work has also gotten a fair bit of attention. Um, but there are a number of strategies that you explore in the book that I had never thought of before, including salary bans. Um, walk us through how that particular strategy works. Well, the, the myth is that your salary is set by the magic of the labor market, where uh, somehow there's some formula for how much you contribute to the profitability of your firm, if it's a private sector firm. And somehow, this is mystically communicated to the employer who knows exactly how much to pay. This is all ideological nonsense, right? Uh, as I argue in Hell to Pay, wages are based on the relative bargaining power of the employer and the worker. And this is not some radical left-wing idea. It was the view of Adam Smith, uh, 
and of uh, J.S. Mill and of Alfred Marshall, the founder of modern uh, neoclassical economics. Uh, it's, it's bargaining power. So because compensation is the largest cost of most private sector employers, there's a lot of money to be had in minimizing wages. And the way the best way to minimize wages is to minimize bargaining power. If you can get rid of organized labor and collective bargaining, that's the most important one. But let's say let's you, you can keep lowering bargaining power even where you don't have unions and never had unions, for example, with professionals. Uh, so you can do it through outsourcing. Now we tend to use outsourcing for offshoring, that is to moving things to other countries, but technically. Outsourcing means taking a job that used to be done in-house within the company and then, you know, outsourcing it to uh, a contractor. Uh, and under U.S. labor laws, when you turn the uh, former in-house worker into uh, an outsourced worker who's a contractor now, then you can pay them less and you don't have to pay them benefits. And, and you know, they're, they're basically exempt from all these labor protections. Uh, there are, as you say, there are salary bans, which is something I discovered working for a large organization, uh, a nonprofit in my case. Uh, so if you ever wonder how in a big bureaucratic company or nonprofit or even a government agency, uh, how do they decide how much do you pay a receptionist? How much do you pay a department head? How much do you pay an executive vice president? Well, the answer is they look at what everybody else is paying, which makes no sense if you believe the the economist's theory, right? Because your company may actually need a really good receptionist for $100,000 right that moment, right? If it were based on the company's need. So how is it that they can compare costs with each other? Uh, it's illegal in the United States under the Sherman Antitrust Act for uh, companies to do this, but they use consultants to get around it. So what are called salary bans are uh, basically, it's a, it's a hiring cartel where the employers in a particular industry agree indirectly among each other using these consultants as uh, intermediaries that we're gonna have floors and ceilings for particular occupational categories. So the receptionist, the floor salary is this, the ceiling is that, and none of us, in this field, we'll pay our receptionists more than the ceiling, and we won't pay our department heads more than the ceiling. Okay, so this is a way of reducing the bargaining power of the worker, because let's say you're really a brilliant receptionist, or you're really a brilliant department head, and you want to raise. If you read the business management literature, and I've read it, they say, well, you can't give them a raise above the ceiling, the whole system will crumble. Uh, you have to change their category <laughs> to another category, right? But this is a wage cartel. And wage cartels are Ill illegal as they are and anti-worker as they are. They're created by other methods as well. And one of those methods is uh, uh, no poach agreements, which are completely illegal violations of antitrust law in the U.S. It's, uh, but as I point out, uh, Google, Apple, Disney, many other companies conspired to do this with their tech workers for a decade early in this century. They finally got caught and had to pay fines, but, you know, it's a slap on the wrist. They have so much money. So the way no poach agreement works is the companies get together and they say, okay, if you don't hire away our workers, we won't hire away your workers. But they do this in secret. All right. So, uh, and the purpose of this is to prevent a really talented worker from going to the boss at Apple, say, and, and saying, well, if you don't give me a raise, I'm going to go work for Google. I'll, I'll... Now, so, and then Apple, in this case, Steve Jobs, who orchestrated this no poach conspiracy in the early 2000s, is laughing because he knows Google won't hire. <laughs> he won't hire you. Yeah, so they don't even tell the workers this, right? There's this invisible blacklist among the employers. And this is filtered down even to fast food chains. So burger uh, joints won't hire people who quit another burger joint. Because if that happened, then workers could start playing the burger joints against each other to bid their wages up. A formal version of this, which is legal, the Biden administration thankfully is looking into this, uh, consists of non-compete agreements. That's where 
among the 80 pages that you sign in the United States when you you have a jobs contract, all this fine print, they say initial here, initial there. You know, it says things like uh, you will not work for a rival of this firm for 10 years after you quit. Or uh, in the case of one non-compete agreement of a friend of mine, you will not work for uh, any firm in this business within 2,000 miles of New Jersey ever, right? And then so and then you've signed your name to this, right? And you're contractually obligated to give up all of these opportunities. So there are, sad to say, there are lobbyists and lawyers who make a great deal of money figuring out how to weaken the bargaining power of workers, even through contract law and through practices like a salary bans that most people are completely unaware uh, of. You you also write about mass immigration. And um, as you point out, this is a huge taboo in our era. And uh, but mainstream thinking, as I understand it, as is kind of captured by a quote in your book by the economist uh, Giovanni Perry, there is no evidence that the inflow of immigrants over the period of 1960 to 2004 worsened the employment opportunities of natives with similar education and experience. You write in the book, this statement is demonstrably false and that people of goodwill can disagree about particular categories and quantities of immigration. Um, what I wanted to draw from that, I, I encourage everyone to read that section. There's a lot of data. But what I wanted to draw from that is, as you point out in the book, this is something that is very new in terms of the left. The left used to look at lower immigration based on labor economics and used to be opposed to globalization in general. You know, the WTO protests in Seattle were just in 1999. What happened? Why did the left move away from trade skepticism and immigration skepticism in this last generation to the point where you can't even talk about public policy? Well, it's it's now... Immigration has been defined as a civil rights anti-racist issue rather than as a labor market issue. Uh, and so any criticism of any restriction on immigration is, is claimed to be evidence of xenophobia or bigotry. Uh, and a lot of it was in the past. So, for example, the 19th century in the U.S. and Canada and also in Latin America, there was opposition against Chinese uh, uh, labor uh, being brought to the U.S., uh, and to the Western Hemisphere, Canada too, by employers on racial grounds, very nasty anti-Asian racism, but also on economic grounds. Uh, and we're taught this wrong. So, for example, we're taught that, well, there were all these Chinese immigrants uh, coming to the Western Hemisphere. And then out of pure racial hatred, uh, we had the Oriental Exclusion Acts and similar acts in Canada uh, uh, and even in Mexico and Latin America around the same time in the late 19th century. Well, these were not immigrants. <laughs> in China in the 19th century, there were almost no, no Chinese who could buy a steamship ticket and go to the Western Hemisphere. These were so-called coolies, which was a Hindu term uh, for contract labor. The British Empire, after it abolished slavery, uh, in, in its own empire in the 19th century and cracked down on it everywhere, uh, transported uh, multiple, I think it was like four times as many Chinese and Indians across the oceans to work in the Western Hemisphere and in Africa and other places as all of the uh, African slaves who had been transported in the previous 400 years. Uh, this was indentured servants. And a lot of the European labor, including my great-grandparents, who were indentured servants from Sweden in the 1890s, were brought to the U.S. You were bound to an employer. You, this was not free labor. Uh, so the, one of the great triumphs of the organized labor movement in the United States in the 19th century was shutting down contract labor, being brought in by companies, uh, people who could not quit their employers, uh, who replaced the workers who had civil rights. Uh, uh, and I go through the book, uh, 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 A. Philip Randolph, uh, one of the great uh, African-American civil rights leaders, organizer of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, uh, where Martin Luther King made his famous speech in uh, 1963. In the 1920s, he supported radical restriction of European immigration to defend black workers from competition. Uh, Samuel Gompers, who was a Jewish immigrant from London, 
supported uh, restricting immigration because he was the founding president of the American Federation of Labor. And so the unions always had a kind of a restrictionist approach to immigration that when they thought it was being used against them by employers. And that lasted through the 80s and 90s. Uh, President Carter and President Clinton both appointed commissions on immigration that, that heavily reflected the views of organized labor and African-Americans. Uh, the Carter Commission was headed by the Reverend Theodore Hesburg of uh, Notre Dame. Uh, the uh, Clinton Commission, which published its report in, in 1996, was headed by uh, the late Barbara Jordan, great African-American representative from Texas, who happened to be a friend of my family. Uh, she uh, performed the wedding ceremony for my cousin and, and uh, my uh, Aunt Shelby uh, co-authored her memoir. Uh, and, and at the time, even in 1996, uh, what did the Jordan Commission propose? And this was the pro-labor view of the time, uh, a crackdown on illegal immigration, uh, the equivalent of, of Universal E-Verify, this program uh, to make sure that no illegal immigrants were hired by checking with a national computer registry. That grew directly out of the Jordan Commission recommendations. Uh, uh, a foolproof national ID card so that you could not get hired uh, if you snuck into the country and uh, cutting back on low-skill legal immigration competing with uh, poor Americans and also poor legal immigrants are already here. That was the center left in 1996. It was denounced by the Chamber of Commerce, by the agribusiness lobby, you know, which wanted more and more low-wage labor, uh, and also by uh, La Raza Unida, a radical leftist uh, Hispanic organization, uh, where, like many ethnic advocacy groups, that's their business model. They want to expand their, their client base, right, their membership of their ethnic group. Uh, so by the 2000s, uh, labor just gave up. They surrendered. Uh, and and I think it's really because at that point, the private sector labor unions had ceased to be a force, even in the private sector. We were down to 10 percent. Now it's down to 6 percent. And they just became a wing of the Democratic Party, which saw its future. Uh, they may be mistaken on this because I'm not sure uh, the descendants of immigrants are going to vote for Democrats forever. But they thought, well, we'll just get a minority of the white vote. Uh and we'll have college-educated whites and a minority population, which is expanded, frankly, by immigration. Uh, so, so by the year 2010 or so, uh, there was no daylight between the libertarian right, uh, which wanted low-wage immigration, the Chamber of Commerce, farmers and ranchers, right, <laughs> who wanted to bring in workers, paid dirt wages, you know, terrible poverty wages, and the so-called progressives. Uh, so that's that's the history of this inversion. Uh, and this is not to say that there's not always been uh, racial prejudice, ethnic prejudice uh, against particular immigrant groups. Uh, ben Franklin denounced German immigration. He said the Germans are swarthy. They're not truly white. It's very bizarre. <laughs> But he wanted to keep the Germans out uh, and just have, have uh, people from the British Isles. So so racism has always been part of it. But uh, as for the, the point, you know, like I quote uh, Giovanni Perry in the book, because he's the go-to uh, economist, people always quote. And you read the op-ed pages now, everything, you know, the, the center right, the center left. They say economists say that uh, immigration does not reduce wages. Well, it's not true. I've read the two reports of the National Academies of Sciences on immigration in 1996 and in 2016, 20 years apart. They both concluded that low-skilled immigration has driven down wages for low-skilled workers in the United States. But they then say, but it's made other Americans better off by lowering prices. So, and it also expands the economy because the more people you have, the bigger your overall economy is. So this gets garbled in translation. And the, the NAS reports, by the way, were based on a survey by bipartisan scholars of hundreds and hundreds of separate studies. So when anyone says economists agree 
that uh, wages are not suppressed at the bottom by immigration, they 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 either don't know what they're talking about or they're consciously lying. Uh, when you look at particular industries, which is the way you have to do it, we have case after case of where what were unionized high wage industries in the eighties and nineties, like the janitorial industry in uh, Los Angeles, uh, like uh, meatpacking in the Midwest. That was a unionized industry. It's now. These are horribly squalid, low-wage industries. The unions are dead, Uh, largely illegal immigrant, unauthorized immigrant, if you want to use that euphemism, uh, workforces. Uh, And so finally, you you read the conventional establishment about immigration, and they say two contradictory things. They say uh, immigrants have no effect on wages. And then they say without more immigration, prices will go up. Now, think about it, okay? Both statements cannot be true because why would prices go up if we have less immigration? Because there would be labor shortages. Uh, What would the response of the employers to the labor shortage be? It would be to raise wages to attract people already here to do those jobs. And then they would pass on the higher wages to consumers, Right. So the only way an absence of immigration can lead to immigration to uh, higher prices for consumers is because it leads to higher wages for workers. So in this contradiction, the same people in the same op ed or the same editorial will make both assertions, not realizing that they completely contradict each other. I mean, and from a journalistic perspective, it's, it's troubling to not be able to have a public conversation about key public policy points. I mean, I, I think that's the point that we're at right now on that well, issue. Well, I, I was a journalist for much of my career. Uh, you know, you're supposed to quote opposing sides. And increasingly, and this is not just true of the immigration issue, it's a lot of economic issues. They quote one expert with one opinion, and then that's it. And you're waiting for, well, what about the other side? It never comes. Um, and just to close, because we're, we're running out of time, I, I want to ask you about um, where we go from here. And I, I again, I encourage everyone to read the book because it's a very detailed set of kind of recommendations for going forward. What I was left sort of wondering about was um, given, as you say at the end of the book, we are at a crisis point. This system of neoliberal globalism will end at a certain point. The alternatives on the table are not attractive, a stable oligarchy, basically hereditary aristocracy, or else rebellions led by populist demagogues. Um, But how do you convince a political class and a corporate class to change in time, given that this system is working quite well for them at the moment? what is the incentive for that class to make a change? Well, my argument in uh, Hell to Pay is in my previous book, The New Class War, is that international competition, interestingly enough, is likely to uh, lead to a more pro-worker policy than simply rebellion from below. Uh, the only reason we had uh, uh, a peace treaty between government, business, and labor in the 1950s and 60s was because of World War II, where the government required uh, defense contractors uh, to be unionized, and then that carried over into the early Cold War, and business leaders realized that we can't really compete with the Soviet Union representing proletarian internationalism uh, if we're constantly at war with our own workers. And so they just uh, they weren't happy about it, but but they compromised. And they shared power with uh, unions. So I think we're in the beginning, unfortunately, I mean, it's it's not something you want to wish, but of a new Cold War with uh, China in particular and and Russia secondarily, uh, which could go on for decades or generations. Uh, And if you're looking at the Chinese model of authoritarian state capitalism, which is a form of government business collaboration, where independent labor has no role, just like independent political parties in this this market Leninist system, as people call it. If that's one model for the rest of the world, and then the world sees the U.S. saying, you know, well, we're fighting for freedom, but companies are doing everything they can 
to nickel and dime their workers. And uh, much of the population is dependent on the generosity of the welfare state and low wages, then I, I do think you will get some enlightened Americans in the elite uh, say this is embarrassing to us in this global competition in the same way that racial segregation was embarrassing to the U.S. in the Cold War, uh, you know, because it was alienating post-colonial people in Africa and the Middle East and, and uh, around the world in Asia. Uh, and uh, so, so I think, you know, you'll get a reformist group of the elite saying we need labor peace. Uh, and uh, it's my hope, I may be naive, but also you'll get most business in the U.S. pays workers relatively decently. Uh, as I said, the really bad jobs are concentrated in a few sectors. And you really need to get the decent uh, industries to say, why are we tolerating you know, this underpaid retail sector and this under, they need to clean up their act. They're embarrassing to us. They're embarrassing to capitalism. They're causing young people to turn to socialism uh, against capitalism. So, so the goal of my book is, you know, this is not an anti-business book or an anti-employer book. Uh, but rather, we want to renew a system in which there is shared prosperity based on power sharing and sharing the wealth among business and uh, workers who are participants in a, in a common uh, uh, enterprise of, uh, of economic growth. Well, there is so much to think about in this book. And Michael, I really appreciate the conversation today. And you've given me uh, just so much to take away from. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.